where the government is actually trying to reform, at least they're saying they're trying to reform, which is social care. Oh, forget it. That's not going to be reformed <laughs> at all. It's appalling. <laughs> we're going to come to that. Hold on, David. God. <laughs> Don't get me started. My name is Matthew Lash, I'm the Head of Research at the ASI. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my colleagues, uh, our Deputy Director, Matt Kilcoyne, and our full director, Eamon Butler. In this week's episode, we'll be discussing the national insurance hike, reforming social care, and the potential for a new Cold War. The government has announced an increase in national insurance to fund health and social care under the guise of a new levy, breaking a key manifesto commitment. Matt, why do you think the government's gone for a national insurance increase rather than income tax? Is it true that potentially it's just perceived to be more popular, that people have this perception that national insurance is, well, actually insurance? So what I heard from inside both the Treasury and Number 10 is that Boris had got it into his head that the NHS needed to be funded, that it would have to be a tax, that people didn't mind the concept of the national insurance being paid for hypothecatedly on the NHS. Um, but also um, he'd started, he'd been influenced by his advisors closest to him that see national insurance um, and the the sort of the, the amounts that people are paying in rent and mortgage costs as like being business rates uh, to rents on the high street. And therefore, as rents have fallen in the last year, they could increase national insurance um, and not actually decrease the budgetary ability of, of people lower down in the income scale. Um, and I'm not sure that they're right on that, but that is at least the thing. Yeah, I mean, it isn't national insurance a relatively inequitable way to go about trying to increase taxes, particularly since it hits middle income earners the way they're doing this. So at 1.25% on your personal contributions, then 1.25% on employer contributions. That's that's hundreds of pounds for, for the average worker being lost there indefinitely, effectively. Yes, it's a lot of money. And it's for a lot of money from the poorest people in the country to subsidize the housing or protecting the housing inheritance of the very wealthiest, the most likely to be, they're most likely to white, they're most likely to live in the South, they're most likely to be the old Tory voters, not the voters that voted Boris in at the last election. Yeah, I think that uh, putting putting this burden onto national insurance is completely cynical, because uh, national insurance is one of these taxes people don't really notice very much. It's just on your your pay packet and so on. They they see the headline rate of income tax, but national insurance on their payroll slip it doesn't really look very much because the employee doesn't pay very very much. Most of national insurance is played by employers. And that is why it's so economically very damaging. We're at a stage now where the economy is absolutely shot full of holes because of COVID. We need to fill those holes. Businesses have got to get back uh, running again instead of just going on sort of half-cock as they are at the moment. Uh, and uh, we, we need new businesses to fill the gaps of all of those ones that have closed down for one reason or another. And the one thing which is really kills business formation and entrepreneurship is high taxation. Because if you're starting a new business or even actually trying to revive an existing one, you, you're, um, you're taking a big risk. You know, you, <clears throat> If you're starting a new business, you might even have to mortgage your house and all that sort of stuff. So you've got enough risk already. And then if you're slapping extra taxes on people, that increases the risk even more. And so you get uh, people are much more reluctant to start businesses and start taking on new workers because of this tax. So I, 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 think, it's, I think it's entirely cynical because it's, it's a kind of stealth tax. And it's one of the most damaging ways in which you could have raised the money. It, it's also even potentially worse than just uh, uh, it says national insurance. I think the government's also talking about in future years, it'll come up on your payslip as a health and social care levy. <laughs> well, that, that's at least honest, isn't it? Because national insurance is a Ponzi scheme. And is is and is frankly, you know, it's a missell. They wouldn't allow it by a private company. The, the, the advertising standards agency would shut it down. Oh, they'd all be in the slammer. It's a Ponzi scheme, and having it on on your pay pay slip 
this is a contribution to a Ponzi scheme, you know, that is not a good thing, right? I mean, it's a tax. Call it a tax. We know it's a tax. It's not going to go to health and social care. It might go to huge bureaucracy. And you see the NHS is getting flanked. Uh, this week because it's uh, um, appointing lots of new bureaucrats and diversity officers and goodness knows what else um, at hundreds of thousands of pounds salaries. Uh, it's not going to go to frontline care. So, you know, forget the idea that it's uh, uh, it's actually a, a national insurance. It's not national insurance. It's just it's just a tax. It's got nothing to do with insurance except the name. The original idea in when 1911 or whenever it was, was that it would be. But no, it's always been a Ponzi scheme. And, uh, you know, I just hope that lots of um, mugs will carry on paying it um, uh, into my ripe old age. <laughs> I'm just just going to unpack a little bit here what's going to happen politically with this. So I think the the general assumption was, and the previous polling found that if you ask people, it's a little bit deceptive. You say, "Oh, would you would you support you know a one p increase or one percentage increase uh, percentage point increase in national insurance in order to fund health and social care?" Basically, if you frame something around the NHS, it tends to get very high popular support. At least on the face of it, it seems to get that very popular support. Now, I think that can be a bit deceptive because people don't necessarily know what 1% means in, in meaningful terms. It's it's a very different to ask someone, are you willing to pay £300 extra uh, a year to to fund um, old people not having to sell their homes? Uh, that would be a very different framing of this. And that's the way people come to understand it. And in fact, I think that's the way people have come to understand it because the support for it is now turned negative in the, in the polls that have come out. They, particularly amongst Labour voters, but even some Tory voters, don't seem to be particularly supportive of this increase in national insurance. And on top of that, the potential risk to the Tory party that this becomes a bit of a sleeper issue, just like university fees did for the Lib Dems, people come back in their selection and say, I voted Tory because I didn't want to see my taxes increase. I just assumed that that's what they're always going to do. And now here they are breaking their promise. Does this potentially backfire? Although some disappointment, I'm sure, to myself and and, and, and you guys as well, um, the government's uh, backbenchers have decided not to rebel particularly strongly on this. So I think about five or six voted against uh, and about 30 abstained. There's a reason that none of them rebelled and none of the cabinet have yet resigned. And that's because the opposition within the Conservative Party to to this kind of policy comes from the free market side of the party. And it's not an insubstantially numbered one nowadays. It's it's um, sort of well into the hundred at least a third of the party, parliamentary party. Um, but the problem is that the wets never resign because the wets have no principles. And if you resign because you have principles, you leave the wets in charge. And they've known this for decades because they've done it for decades. Um, and so last this week, all of the ministers, one by one, were dragged into a meeting with the Prime Minister, with Munira Mirza, his chief advisor, with Declan from Number 10, and also the you know, chiefs of staff, basically, and were told, don't you dare resign. And they all said to a man that they would have done it, and to a woman, I suppose, that they would have done it, but they knew who would have been left there in their place. And it would have been a disaster in all other regards, because there is some good work that the government's doing. And it is there is some good work that needs to be done. Um, but they need to find a mitigation for this policy because it is a disaster. Because And it comes from a pollster that the, the prime minister favours, um, who sort of believes, Matthew, that as you do, that you can frame the question, control the message, um, and that the polling is always static, um, that people will always favour the tax hike rather than... Uh, a tax cut and it's really it's 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 he's a great man and he's a lovely man but he's it's a little bit short on thinking polling is dynamic and it responds to leadership yeah it responds to how things come out in the public debate uh, as well over time what i'm interested in as well in terms of uh, we're going to go on to discuss social care in a few minutes but it seems at least in the short run uh, the vast majority of this money that's been raised it's, it's 36 billion uh, over the next three years uh, from this new levy. Uh, the government also then raised, um, uh, just, I guess, putting on the debt, another $5 billion for the NHS in the next six months. Most of that's going to actually go not to social care, which was the original framing of this, but actually just to try to reduce the NHS waiting list that's really skyrocketed. I think something like 7 million people across the UK are, are waiting for treatments, and that's just the ones we know about, let alone all the, the treatment that hasn't been sought. Um do we think that, I guess, a, a moral and worthwhile use of this money, is it going to achieve much in terms of reducing the waiting list? Um, and therefore, it might in some way be 
justified in that respect or realistically is it not going to achieve anywhere near as much as it should? It won't achieve anything at all because the NHS fundamentally needs to be reformed and social care needs to be reformed even more. So pouring more money into those two things is like pouring petrol into a, a rusty engine. It's still not going to go. It's just not going, going to get you anywhere. Um, and, what, and what we need to do is to have a root and branch reform of the NHS and rethink how it's actually structured and, and funded and to introduce more choice and competition into the system uh, and, and get those market principles working for us. I'm afraid it's a busted flush. It's been a busted flush for a long, long time. It's an old-fashioned nationalized industry. It's the last vestige of the old uh, 1940s uh, welfare state. And like all the other nationalized monopolies, uh, well, like any monopoly, it, it, it doesn't produce a good service for its customers. And go anywhere else in Europe and you'll get a better healthcare system. But it does create shortage. That's the one thing that the NHS is really good at. Now, Eamon, you, um, you, with, you with your full colours and me with my half colours, and in my final few months at the ASI, um, are going to look at reforming the NHS um, in a paper that hopefully will release in December. And I'm going to work with anybody and anyone who has ideas, who has something that they've always wondered why it wasn't been, hasn't been implemented, and if so, if you're a doctor or a nurse or a technician, or you've been to hospital and been treated badly, if you've been to hospital and been treated well, and you want to help us do that, if you email us, it's just info at adamsmith.org or matt at adamsmith.org. I'll take a look at the ideas because we want the wisdom of the crowds. If we're going to solve a problem as big as the NHS, we need as many ideas as possible. Mm. It, it seems like in many senses what just happened is a huge missed opportunity because the, the government could have made this huge amount of money conditional on some kind of structural form to the NHS that's expensive to restructure. It depends what, what you want to achieve or, or certain kind of reforms in terms of goals or, or whatever else it may be. Um, or just basically to ask questions like, why does the NHS rank in the bottom third of healthcare systems world? Why are thousands more people dying from common cancers in the UK compared to Netherlands, Germany and Belgium? Uh, why does it take weeks to get a GP appointment? Why does hospital food taste so bad? And and what are the, what are the alternative models that we can look at? And this is what Boris Johnson called the pride of the United Kingdom. <laughs> I don't feel remotely proud about it. I think it's disastrous. I think it's disastrous. Uh, but yes, uh, we, we need to... To rethink these things, the um, you know people have been thinking about this for an awful long time. But you know people like the idea of healthcare being free at the point of use. Now, okay, we can do that, but we can do that using market mechanisms rather than to have a big nationalised monopoly. And that's the the route that we've got to look down, so that we you know we we have a system that actually does what people uh, rely on and, and and value most about the system, but without all of the basically it being run run by the users uh, and uh, you know we've tried lots of things in the past and really the bureaucracy has just closed in on them and, and sadly it's not actually run by the users it's run by the unions i mean i i've been through the nhs recently and more on that in in, in future episodes and the, the number of times where it's a rigmarole of who who has the right to refer who has the right to triage um oh you have to go back down to your gp uh, you can't, they can't horizontally refer, um, and unless you've gone to acute care, um, in which case they can only do certain procedures, because oh, again, actually, uh, A&E can't order soft, uh, soft tissue scans, they can only offer x-rays. And it's just this most incredibly bureaucratic system that has been designed piecemeal by pe- piece by piece, and, and often trust by trust, with unions that are demanding things for their members, whether that's the BAA, um, or the Royal College of Nursing, which means that the doctors and nurses who really just want to treat you, get you better, and do their job and their vocation are not able to deliver them their jobs. And that's a real travesty. You know, if, if, uh, uh, if government was a business, if we were looking at this as a business, and they had a, a backlog of orders, let's say, uh, what would they do? They would say, well, how quickly are we processing the current orders? And if we throw some some money at this problem, how quickly then will the orders uh, all be be cleared? And that's exactly what we should be doing with the NHS. You say, right, how long is it going to to take to clear that 7 million uh, queue for treatment? Uh, And if we put the money in, 
where would it go in such a way that uh, it's actually going to reduce that? And let's measure that as we go along. And if, and if it's not happening, then I'm afraid, lads, you don't get any more money until you sort it out and do something that works. Yeah, one of the most extraordinary things about all this is just the fact that there is actually no plan to reduce the backlog. There's now a lot of cash, but the governor hasn't actually demanded anything specific in terms of a plan to, to address um, the, the backlog and how we're going to do that. It just feels like it's, this is a classic NHS story, which is it's a top-down bureaucracy. There are the resource decisions made uh, because there's no price incentive, there's no feedback from, from the consumers. You're not a consumer of the NHS. You're just an input to be outputted as a patient, and they don't particularly care about you. When, when Gordon Brown increased uh, national insurance to pay for the uh, help uh, the NHS, all he produced was an increase in GPs' salaries by about 25%. Yeah. It's the only effect he had. It didn't have any effect on patient care at all. And unless you specify what it is that that money is going to buy, that's exactly what will happen. It just go into salaries. And right now, right now it's their NHS. They say it's our NHS. But frankly, it should be your NHS because it's your health that matters. Just before we move on, I want to I want to touch on one positive thing that came out. It was a, it was a week of political news, and and some some respects, one might say the government was uh, hiding this away, which was the suspension of the pension triple lock. So uh, normally, of course, the pension increases by um, the highest of two point five percent inflation or um, incomes, and there was about to be this eight percent bumper increase in pensions because incomes have gone down last year and. Pensions still went up by 2.5%, and then uh, they're going to bounce back this year by 8 or 9%, and therefore pensions, if, if you didn't remove the triple lock, would have to have gone up massively. And that does feel like good news, of course, but why in the world does the pension lock still ex- the pension triple lock exist in the first place, Matt? I'm not going to celebrate the suspension of the pension triple lock because it was the measliest of carrots dangled after being beaten over the, over the head constantly with a stick all week by the politicians in Westminster. Um, and I'm sort of like, no, there's still a double lock. No, there's still um, an arbitrary figure pulled out of thin air that apparently means that we're going to all be spending more constantly uh, increasing pensioners' incomes. The reason why it was brought in was because there was pensioner poverty, because there had been a lack of um, both private investment, but also in public investment in pensions. Now, we've upped private investment thanks to the auto-enrolment scheme. Um, And we've actually upped now the public sector pension as well, which means that we do not have as much pensioner poverty. And frankly, that we have enough that we have sufficient levels that if we needed to, charity should be able to step in to meet those that have a shortfall. But frankly, watching it go up every single year and going to the richest as well as the poorest with no means testing means that we are sat there with the poorest workers in this country paying hand through mouth for those who are no longer and who are able to sit idle, frankly. That is, it's a disgrace. So no, I won't welcome it. I, I, I sit there in despair at the fact that I'm pretend, I have to pretend to. Well, on another disappointing note, time to move on to where the government is actually trying to reform, at least they're saying they're trying to reform, which is social care. Oh, forget it. That's not going to be reformed at all. <laughs> it's appalling. <laughs> we're going to come to that. Hold on, David. God. Don't get me started. The central policy announcement this week from the government was a new cap in how much people would be required to spend on social care in the spirit of the earlier do not reform proposals. I mean, you've spent quite a lot of time focused on social care for, for your sins as a policy issue, uh, and, and you've written a few fantastic papers for the ASI about this topic. I'm wondering if you can give us an idea of what is wrong with social care. We hear this a lot, that the system is broken, uh, that it's not working anymore. Before we start thinking about whether or not the government's proposal is going to fix it, what, what is the problem that we need to solve here? Uh, yeah, we've we've been. Uh, I've certainly been writing on it, and we've been publishing on it uh, since the nineteen eighties. Um, <clears throat> well, the, the the system is completely broken. Um, it is full of perverse incentives. Um, it is <clears throat> grossly unfair. Um, the uh, pr- public sector, in particular, is completely undercapitalized, and lots of political initiatives in order to try to improve social care have actually made it very much worse. So the, the whole system is broken. You know, for example, uh, most of the local authority homes and, the, and even the private homes that uh, local authority cases go into are over um, 20 or 25 years old. Uh, many of them are converted hotels or Victorian houses. 
Um, they're not fit for purpose. They don't even come up to the 2001, 2007-2008 uh, legal standards in terms of uh, bedroom sizes and day room sizes and uh, and all the rest of it. So that's that's broken. Um, and then uh, in care delivered at home, uh, again local authorities manage this, and they go for not for quality but for price. So they go to the cheapest bidder. And what they what they end up with is relatively unqualified carers visiting people in their homes, and uh, they're so busy zipping from one uh, house to another that they don't really have very much time to spend with the uh, the people who need their their help. And what we need instead there is is a, a technological approaches so that uh, we can actually monitor people's um, health and condition more. Uh, remotely, and we and we can use technology in order to fill the gaps where, where people are are in short supply or or are expensive. Um, so the, everything is wrong with it. Just to get a sense around the current system, um, more or less, if if you need social care, if you're at, you know the point of your life where you can no longer take care of yourself, would you correct to say, I mean, that uh, more or less, if you below a certain level of of assets um, and and income, you more or less have a claim on your local council, but there's a huge waiting list on that. Tens of thousands of people waiting to get into care homes. And if you have a bit of a higher income, then basically pay for it all yourself. Um, and then there's meant to be some cross subsidies between those two systems, but it doesn't really work that well. And, and the central complaint from people is, well, you have to sell my home to fund my, my social care and it's all too expensive and the system's not very good. Yes, yeah, so that, that's, uh, that's ex- exactly the case, that uh, uh, care is means tested and you get it uh, free, basically, if you're under a, a certain asset level. What the, the government has done, of course, is to increase that asset level uh, considerably, which means that there's going to be even more cases having to be reviewed by local authorities. Uh, you know, I, f- I figure about double. And uh, there are already tens of thousands of cases behind hand. There's a, there's a, a backlog that they haven't got around to assessing. Um, so there are people who need care but are not getting it because they, they haven't been through the means test yet. Um, and uh, th- that, ca- that caseload is going to double. There's no extra money going into local authorities to deal with it. Uh, people will be turned down and then they will go to court and try to appeal it because, you know, who wants to pay um, £1,000 a week for social care when you can get it for nothing? So it's worth going to court. Uh, and so they have lots of court cases and judicial in- inquiries and so on. Uh, and that is that caseload is, is just going to double. So uh, there's going to be a real backlog. And, and meanwhile, I mean, there are changes in the rules that I, I think uh, mean that, that private care homes are going to be under even greater strain. I mean, they're under huge strain from from costs and the, the uh, living wage and all the rest of it um, has increased their, their costs uh, remarkably because they're very labor intensive. Um, so they're already under strain. And I think there are new rules which are slightly technical, but I, I, I think that they're, they're going to just they're going to kill off that sector if we don't watch it. I mean, this is going to be nationalization by stealth because the only things that are going to be left will be crumbling local authority care homes. I think we should be very honest about this. It's not by stealth. This was the original plan yeah. um, under Dominic Cummings's plan for the 2019 election. Um, it was suggested that he would denationalize the, the social care system and Boris told him no. Boris is now doing this accidentally Um, having nearly decimated the social care system last year in its response to the COVID pandemic, not just in its failure to protect the vulnerable, not just in its failure to prevent the pandemic spreading at the level and written where and how it did, um, but also um, in the respect that because they gummed up the housing market, because that um, a lot of care homes and funeral homes operate on equity release systems, um, for people who have assets that sell them on, they nearly bankrupted the system as well by their intervention in on shutting down of the market. Um, now he wants to fix that, but Harry Cole of the Sun uh, saying that there's a ten billion pound black hole. So we've not just got even a tax rise on one side. We've also, because of their spending pledges, created a new black hole in um, and a shortfall. Um, this, this is this is a disastrous situation. But the problem is also that social care isn't just about old people. A lot of it is about adults who we want to be able to live independently, um, who have Down syndrome or who have um, ongoing care needs, quadriplegic needs, who need and rightly deserve 
the very best of care in our society at home. But we need to be looking as well at how we run care homes, where they are, why they are what they are, whether they're acute care, chronic care, palliative care, whether they're actually something that the pe- where people should be wanting to live. It's not at the moment it's seen as a place that you desperately want to avoid. Um, and I can see why from last year. But there's no reason why inner city living couldn't be for elderly generations too, um, and allowing therefore a bit more of the experience on the high street that would make it a bit more alive and therefore, frankly, keep more of them alive um, into good and, and healthily and happily into old age. Yeah, there's a whole uh, spectrum of different levels of care that one could have. You know, uh, At the simplest, we could simply help families to look after their disabled or, or elderly relatives, for example. That's more difficult than these days than it used to be because people, children tend to live away from their parents and so on. Uh, but nevertheless, that uh, seems to me a simple way, way of doing it. Had I been able to get um, help at the right time, I would have looked after my mother in home. But you know, at home, but but that that didn't happen. So so there's that, and then you've got uh, sort of a, various forms of assisted living and sheltered housing and uh, things like that. Before you then move up to to full uh, res- residential care. So there's a whole spectrum there which we're not using. And if we had an actual competitive commercial market, then these sorts of things would be exploited. And I, you know, it seems to me that the government is. is getting anxious because there are some people, about a third of people, about a third of people will need some kind of uh, uh, social care. And that can be very expensive, uh, especially if it's residential care. And therefore, people do have to sell their their assets. But, you know, they saved uh, up for a rainy day. And then when the rainy day comes, it's quite reasonable you should ask them to do it. But people see that as grossly unfair. And it seems to me that the easiest thing would be for the uh, government to be really the insurer of last resort. You insure yourself uh, for enough care for five or six years, and then if you need more than that, then the government will pick up the tab. But that would create or help create a a flourishing insurance market, and it would lead to other solutions coming up because everybody would know that, uh, that, that all providers would know they're not going to be uh, saddled with a customer who might be needing uh, care for, what, 20 years. It, it seems like uh, what the government's proposing now is, is extremely problematic. Firstly, in the sense that um, the vast majority of the current social and uh, sorry, health and social care levy will will go to the NHS, as we discussed earlier. And it's very hard to see how the government's going to basically reduce funding to the NHS in three or four years' time, particularly since, for the reasons we've already discussed, the NHS uh, isn't very good at actually delivering services and there will still be backlogs and there'll still be inefficiencies and more. And there's a risk that all this money will just be built into the ongoing operational costs of the NHS. So if you take away that money, everyone will scream, bloody Mary, defund the NHS. So that's actually going to potentially leave very little money, um, at least in the current social um, health and social care levy, for for social care, despite that being the area that they're actually trying to reform here in the longer run. So we're probably going to end up actually having to pay much more on that just to, to fill these huge gaps in social care. But I think what um, the point you've made very well, Eamon, is the sense that what we actually need in social care is massive private investment to, to build infrastructure, to build new homes, modern facilities. Um, and that's not going to come from the government. It's going to come from, from struggling local councils who just don't have the cash that they need to fund that. So you're actually not going to particularly improve. And the potential unintended consequences that you're talking about from the government's reforms, that if you put more pressure onto the public system, you can have fewer people being willing to spend some of their own money on social care. You might actually end up with less money overall in social care, even if there's more tax um, taxpayer money going in. And as a result, the quality of care, the number of um, social care spaces will, will decline just because the private operators, uh, many of them won't be able to survive if they don't get that the, the private patients anymore who pay far more than the, the public patients. So overall, it doesn't seem like we've really solved anything with these reforms. And and the current debate assumes that, well, at least we're spending all this money, we're fixing social care, but that doesn't really seem like it's the case at all. Well, we're not solving social care, we're not solving the reform of the NHS, and they haven't done for a decade, because you need prioritisation of diagnostics, you need a total revamp of how people are first contacted, and then who their key account managers are, you need to have a real, a real sea change in acute care. You need to have a look at how whether we can have medical data transferred and therefore looked at. You you get a GP or a nurse's appointment with people from New Zealand and Australia and Singapore and America. Um, the right to choose 
so that your money follows you, even if you don't choose the NHS approved medicines, then that but, but which are available on other healthcare systems and which have good track records elsewhere. We need to have a streamlining of what's unfortunately actually this one is happening because of a paper we did a few years ago where drugs and techniques and devices um, are automatically approved in the UK if they're approved in one of the other great developed states that we trust. Um, but I just wanted to, to also warn about the fact that, Matt, you love devolution, right? That you love the, the, the wonderful world of um, Cardiff Bay Council and um, Edinburgh City Council expanded to Holyrood, um, having, having sort of say over their little fiefdoms. Um, because... The, the, you're going to have a national insurance increase which hits every worker in the, in the whole of the United Kingdom. This is a British tax. Um, and yet the social care system is devolved, and so and as is health. And so whatever spending pledges are made on, uh, on the TV by Boris Johnson is just English. So everybody's hearing at home, if you're in Scotland or Wales or Northern Ireland, you're going to be paying more for an English system that you're not going to get even. And then anything that the Welsh or Scottish governments announce on health and social care, because they're very good at announcing how much they're going to spend as well, will be seen as a Welsh spend or a Scottish spend on a Scottish service. So they won't get the benefit and they're getting all of the cost. And it's and that and that's before we even get to the fact that they, you know, the the, the differentials and which one but the Barnet formula favors Scotland over Wales or something like that. And and I ha- I'm going to read the re- an exchange I had with someone at number 10 because I warned them about this. And they said, um, I think hypothecation addresses this. And I said, I'm not sure that a tax on jobs or a tax on investment solves much, frankly, other than the question of whether this was a government that actually wanted to go for growth or not. To which he responded, different point. And I, uh, and I just, it just makes me, I mean, my eyes rolled. But, but, you know, that kind of flippant response um, to something which is a fundamental issue on two counts really shows a paucity of thought. It seems like the, the easiest way to not tax the UK for English services is simply not to tax the UK for English services. Um, actually, maybe consider improving the quality of services. But I think on that note, we might move on to our, our final section a bit less UK politics focused, thinking about a new Cold War. With NATO forces firmly out of Afghanistan, attention has turned to how the retreat could impact future global conflict. Uh, but before we get on to a little bit of that broader discussion, I want to focus in again on Afghanistan, where Taliban has appointed an all-male interim government made up largely of fighters from the 1990s. Now, this seems to break the, the central promise that Taliban was making or some commentators in the West defending the withdrawal were making that, well, this isn't your grandfather's Taliban, actually. It's, it's very reformed now and very progressive. And, you know, we, we're going we're gonna to only shut down and stone half the women and um, only murder three quarters of the homosexuals. Um, I suppose the, the central question here, which I'm already poo-pooing, is, is this not just a very early sign that the Taliban hasn't changed um, and that we can't trust any of their claims? I loved Guido Fawkes yesterday had a story that was entitled that was sort of illustrated with a picture of the Taliban stood behind the most up to date LGBT flag um, with the triangles. I didn't think it had actually I'm not sure it is the most up to date one because it didn't have the umbrella for sex workers, but it it did have the um, all of the various extras that have been added from in the over the past recent few years. Um, And it said a Taliban breaks diversity pledge. And it was just, it was just the most amusing sort of light relief um, on a story that has been just nothing but misery for the past two months and frankly two decades. Um, The Taliban has appointed an all-male cabinet. Well, obviously they have. They're Islamists. Um, The Taliban have... Uh, you know, started to stop women going to school. They've flogged them in the streets. They've shot men in the fields. Of course they have. They're the Taliban. Um, this, is, this is a barbarous cult, a death cult. But the only bright side is the fact that 3.6 million Afghan women and 7 million, 7.2 million in total Afghans um, have grown up under a world in which the Taliban were not in charge and they knew that another world was possible. And it really is, it's for them to fight. 
It's for them to fight for their future, not for not necessarily. And Biden might have to be right on this, that that it's not necessarily um, America's place to go and die and send its sons to die in the sands of Afghanistan, um, but for them to fight for their own. Well, I mean, arguably they were, Matt, fighting for, for their own. The, the US contribution over the last two years has been... They melted into the sands. Um, ...has been extremely minimal, but provided the, the military and logistics and air force support to, to the Afghan um, military, to far many more of whom have died than, than Western forces. It seems like in some senses we abandoned them. But I guess the, the question, though, going forward, Eamon, is um, to what extent do you, uh, I guess, strategically play ball with the Taliban, accepting the, the evils that they are um, in order to, let's say, make sure that ISIS-K doesn't have um, uh, an operating base in Afghanistan just because the Taliban can't control the country. And it um, also, I suppose, as well, for humanitarian reasons, um, should we be providing aid to Afghanistan? And then also for, for kind of more um, selfish reasons, providing some level of support to the Taliban in order to be able to get out the remaining Western citizens and, and those who supported the, the West war effort in Afghanistan. And so to what level do we now engage with the Taliban and we accept that this is the reality on the ground or do we completely disengage? Um, well, I, I think you have to realise that uh, you know, perhaps one of the reasons why uh, the Taliban marched so rapidly over the country is that there is actually quite a lot of support in Afghanistan for, for their views and principles. So you know, remember that. And, and yes, as, as you say, uh, Matt, we you know we've now we've got millions of people who you know, do have an educate girls who do have an education and all the rest, of, uh, and, and have got used to um, a, a more freedom of dress and movement and association and all the rest of it. But um, it's very easy uh, for that all to be repressed again. And as as in so many cases, we we, we saw it in Eastern Europe and all the rest of it. The revolutionaries are often exceedingly bad at running governments, right? You you, you get people who are pre- prepared to fight in the streets, and then they become the government, and then they don't know what to do, and they just they're they're no good <laughs> at doing it. Um, so I think that there's going to be an unholy mess, and uh, yes, we we certainly don't want uh, uh, ISIS and other groups uh, using uh, Afghanistan as a, a as a jumping off point, but I think there's damn little we can do about it yeah and i I do wonder though Eamon, just because you've got a few more you've got a few a couple of years on me um the 20th century the latter part of the 20th century what was better when the revolutionaries didn't know what they did with what they were doing when they got in charge or the revolutionaries who really did have a plan i'm not sure which ones were worse (laughs) well i i mean i don't know i mean you look at uh, ukraine and so on and i think that's 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 been a mess, and uh, the, the ones that succeeded were were places like the the Baltics, where they hadn't really been, if you like, colonised very much by by the Soviet Union, so they they still understood the Western values and the the the, the European values. Well, the Hanseatic values. Yes, quite, and it was uh, it was uh, relatively easy for them to to get back to that. But I mean, you know, Russia hasn't reformed because it's never really had a market economy. Um, and so people don't understand the principles of the market economy. And I, I think it takes hundreds of years to understand that, quite honestly, and often civil wars on the way. But when you do get it, it's great. But I don't know. I, 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 I can't see it being easily rooted in uh, Afghanistan. Although we should say one of the largest conferences that uses the Adam Smith name um, which is organized by libertarians and draws in thousands of people, is in Moscow. And it happens on the outskirts of Moscow and was organized by the libertarian councillors. And they call it the Adam Smith, the Adam Smith series, after us, actually. And it's a real, it's a real honor, frankly, uh, to hear these freedom fighters. And these are real people who are, have real courage. Um, and, they, and they stand up and they say, and you know, they, they make challenge to Putin. And they help to... They help to, you know, they help to inspire the people who really did give a, a run for his money last year when Navalny looked like he was set to come back. And, and there is, you know, these are the kind of people who on the ground, day by day, change the reality of these regimes. 
Oh, definitely. Uh, you, you know, one of the most poignant things which happened to me over the last week is that I got the um, quarterly newsletter from the Atlas Foundation, which is a, a, the umbrella organization of free market think tanks. And there, right on the front cover of this, is a, a, a photograph of a seminar on the market economy and personal rights and freedom and all of that kind of stuff in Afghanistan, completely a table completely full of men and women and girls. And you think, oh, you know, are they ever going to be able to do that again? You know, they have the ideas, but, you know, will they ever be able to express them in public ever again? And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I did say a, a, an excellent little um extract from a book that was discussing how the, I think it was a, a, an American military commander was just trying to explain the basic idea of public services and taxes that, you know, you, you pay tax and you get a, a service in exchange. And it, it was, they, they basically found that, that the local Afghans had no clue of the concept of taxation. And, and he tried to explain it as, well, it's kind of like, you know, the warlords, they, they take a little bit of your money and they provide you protection. And they said, oh, that's theft. <laughs> that, that sounds like taxation is theft. I'm, well, maybe, maybe the Afghans understand well what we're, <laughs> what we're trying to get at here. I mean, I, I think that also though reflects something broad, a kind of deeper issue there, which is um, Afghanistan doesn't really have a, a history of a, a central government. It, it has a very tribal kind of setup, and the idea of paying taxes to a central government for services or, or goods and you know basics, the existence of the state. I'm not sure that's true. I think that they do get that. I think they, they get it really well. It. In fact, actually, when I was listening, to, I was listening to an American. I was listening to an American um, military podcast the other week. And, and they were saying about one of the reasons why um, it fell so quickly was because the Taliban used to sort of run the roll, the, the, the toll roads um, in various regions around Afghanistan. And as soon as the government stopped paying Afghanistani forces, the way that they, that they you know, subsisted um, was they started demanding an amount of money to go through. And every single one of the government checkpoints would demand money all the way through. But if you went on a Taliban-controlled road, it was just one payment. Because they, they would then sing, send it down the line saying that they paid. And the Taliban effectively just ran a, a toll road system that was cheaper and more efficient and therefore more popular. Get them to come here. This is the element as well with, with the complexity of it, is that a lot of what people are looking for is basic safety. And the Taliban can't. They promise a, a consistent, a harsh, but a consistent legal system, whilst the kind of American-backed regime famously corrupt uh, in, in its treatment of, of the public um, in, in the sense of the kind of failing legal system and a uh, public official stealing money. But just moving on to that kind of broader point in terms of um, where this has left, I guess, the West and US, one of um, Joe Biden's key characterizations is that, well, leaving Afghanistan gives us an opportunity to, to focus on Asia to, to pivot in the, the, the Obama sense. Um, of course, China is very much, and Matt, you, you follow China very closely, is, is painting this as weakness, as, as the US not having the resolve um, to, to, to fight conflicts, and, and therefore its position globally uh, ha, has weakened. Hmm. Well, 25% of Biden voters say that they now regret voting for, for President Joe Biden. The thing is, though, that President Trump had also committed to withdrawal, and it would have been just as disastrous and it would have been just as damaging for America's reputation. Um, but they went in without a plan. They left without a plan. It's a country without a plan. And most of the time, actually, Americans not having a plan works out quite well. In terms of the economy, it works out very well. But when they want to be the world's policemen, it turns into tragedy or it turns into a farce. And right now, we need countries that have a credible, at least consistent and coherent idea of what they want the world to look like and what they want the world to be. Um, and I think that that should be prosperous and free and freedom loving, um, both internally and democratically within one states and nation states, um, and also externally at the multilateral level. Um, and I think that that's got to be done by countries that operate on the worldwide. America is a regional power. It just happens to be a superpower. Um, China is a regional power and Russia is a regional power. France still has states that are right across the world. And Britain and the British states, the Kanzuk states, those states that speak English and operate under a single head of state and have a similar legal system operate on a global basis. Um, and they're the ones that can provide the security of trade happening and facilitating throughout 
the world. And I think there's got to be a change, a sea change in America's understanding that the European powers that it cut down to size, France and Britain, in the 1950s as a result of the, the end of the Second World War because of their distaste for, for, for colonialism, were not the ones that they needed to cut. There was a rush, that was Russia and China. Um, and they're left now um, fighting, fighting two um, new and rising powers that are liberal um, and which we are all going to have to challenge, take on as a challenge together because um, otherwise we do end up in a new Cold War. We do end up in a, in a bipolar or multipolar world and multipolar worlds are not safe. The Pax, Ameri- Pax Britannica became the Pax Americana and it needs to become the Pax Anglo-Saxonia with Europe and the British states, the Kansas states and the America as well. Um, because if they don't work together, they will be divided, as we've seen with New Zealand hived off from the five eyes by China, um, and we all fall. I mean, we, we had this discussion at the start of the year, kind of talking about the, the global headwinds, and it kind of struck me that uh, you, you made a comment on the lines of, you know, th- this is quite an extraordinary time, quite an unstable time. And and for, for someone who, um, I think as Matt has alluded to, um, was there more so for the the first Cold War than we were. Um, I, I think that kind of gave me some some historical context and some concerning kind of historical context that, in terms of the rise of China and, and global um, instability, as well as kind of turning against market mechanisms, both I guess in the West but also um, in in other countries all over the world. Um, there, there does seem to be a lot to be worried about. I'm kind of interested in how, how worried you are um, with that kind of context. Yes, I mean, you know, the, the original Cold War, the, the stakes were very high. We were talking about global domination here and possibly global annihilation. Um, and I, I don't know that we're talking about global annihilation anymore, uh, but we're certainly talking about uh, political systems that we don't necessarily want to uh, control the, the, the whole world. So, I, and uh, as Matt said, I, I, I think uh, I, I, th- I think we in the West take liberal values for granted, and we just assume that that's the natural state of humanity. Um, and so, if somebody doesn't have a liberal reg- uh, uh, regime, all we've got to do is get rid of the regime, and then suddenly uh, liberal uh, values and freedom and, and all the rest will, will come back. And they don't, of course, uh, because uh, th- these are things which um, are very difficult to understand and, and implant. It's much easier to understand socialism and say, you know, let's have a very strong leadership at the same and, and we'll organize everything and it'll all be very efficient and so on and so on. That's very easy to understand. And so that's why, you know, places, places like uh, China and so on um, do very well because you can easily convince millions and millions, indeed billions of people, uh, that that's a, that's a clever idea. Um, it's much more difficult to convince people of the, the benefits of Western values. Uh, and, and that's the snag. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's um, it's a dangerous place, uh, particularly when you've got small groups of individuals now, of course, uh, networked over the Internet um, who can uh, use terrorism here and there um, to uh, to create mayhem. And uh, I, I'm, even states, of course, can do this. And you look at Russia. Uh, you know what what they're doing, poisoning a few people here and there, uh, and uh, you know throwing in a, a, a few troops here and there. It's very cheap, actually. You just gets hired some mercenaries, send them around. You can cause a lot of mayhem uh, doing that, and and really worry uh, the West that you're on the rise. But it, but it's just it's just a cheap way of doing it. And and the trouble is that uh, terrorism terrorism has become cheaper and easier. So, and I would say, in in order to understand China, which we're going to have to do, all of us are going to have to start to understand China over the next few years. Uh, one of the best videos that I think every Westerner should watch is called "China Doesn't Exist" uh, by an etymologist called Zidnaf, which is spelled X I D N A F, um, and it's the way China thinks about itself that's really quite amazing, and also. The commun- how the Communist Party of China thinks about itself is remarkably un-Chinese. Um, the actual China, China itself doesn't, um, that doesn't, isn't called China in China. Um, it means the middle, the, the, the word means the middle realm. The, the Chinese people use a different word, Han Ren, which means the Han people, the people of, of the Han 
um, area of, of which was a which actually was a ruling dynasty. Um, and uh, the Qin, which is what we would name after, is a very small dynasty that happens very, very small uh, over, t- over a tiny period of time. The actual language Chinese is official speak um, in, uh, in, in its etymological, etymological root. And we use Mandarin, which is actually the Malaysian word for government officials from the Chinese middle realm, uh, which is what the, the, the full Chinese term means for their kingdom. Um, and the middle realm is an important concept because it means everything out, outside of it. It means like Mediterranean it does in, in old Roman terms. We're the center of the world and everything beyond us is a bit barbaric. Um, and it's a sort of cheese characteristics. Communism imported both, but, but actually European contact with China imported both the nation state as a concept, which united both the language, the realm and the, the peoples all, and also officials. Um, then it married them with this ideology that is um, heavily mostly about sort of disrupting Catholic and Protestant control of society. Um, and then um, it imports that into China and is effectively about coercion and control. But it's the Qi's characteristics towards it are nothing more than the old imperial Chinese characteristics towards ruling um, an empire as large as China is. Um, but it's but we're going to have to start to understand China a bit better. Um, and for some of that, that just means actually just reading their works. Qi writes all of what he wants to do down. Like he says he wants to get Taiwan by the end of this year, actually. He said it by, I actually know he says by, by the end of 2022 was in his foreign policy book that the Taiwan will be reunited um, or China, sorry, will be reunited because they don't consider Taiwan even to be separate, um, despite the fact that it was only colonized by the Chinese in the uh, in the latter half of the last millennium. Um, and before that was a, a mostly populated by an indigenous indigenous peoples um, who live mostly in the mountains now. Um, it's it's a really fascinating place. And it's a really important place because billions of people live there. Um, and the fact that we know so little of somewhere so far off, and when we're pledged so much via our military alliances to defend, um, it's really important that we actually get to grips with this. I think it's going to be one of those those key issues to try to, to understand it and comprehend. And, and we're just, I think we're very much at the at the, this, the, um, the end of the beginning in terms of the, the way we view China and, and COVID's had a, a very dramatic impact on that and had a very dramatic kind of refocusing effect um, let alone Afghanistan and, and the questions over Taiwan and uh, Biden and, and, and US foreign policy. But I think that, that might be where we have to leave it for today, unfortunately, with, with much always much more to discuss. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Pin Factory. My name is Matthew Lesh. I'm the head of research at BASI. You've been listening to my colleagues, uh, Matt Kilcoyne, who's our deputy director, and Dr. Amy Butler, who is our full director-director. Um, if you're enjoying this episode, uh, please do uh, subscribe and rate us on your chosen podcast provider and tune in again next week. Mm-hmm.